The journey to Easter begins with contemplation of our death. The journey to Easter begins with contemplation of our death. Those are the words of Walter Wangeren. And he talks about how Easter forces us to acknowledge the painful truth that one day we will die. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that death isn't the end of that journey, that there's new life on the other side. For those who trust in Jesus and new life with him, in him, and by him. And we like that part of the story. But one of the things about the story of Jesus is that you cannot experience the resurrection life, this new life, without first experiencing death. You can't experience the life you long for, you were made for, apart from taking the way of the cross. You see, the way of the cross isn't just Jesus' path. For anyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus, it's also theirs. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will predict his death and resurrection. He tells us that he must go the way of the cross. And each prediction is so similar. There's only just minor differences, progressively giving us more detail. And after each uh, prediction, his disciples fail to understand him. They don't get it. Much like you and I, when the disciples first encounter Jesus, they don't recognize his divinity or the fullness of who he is, his identity. But as they spend time following him, learning from him, obeying him, their eyes are open to more of who he is. And these three predictions in the Gospel of Mark are meant to pull back the curtain on who Jesus is, what he's about. And they're also this call from Jesus to join him in taking that sacred way. So in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look at each one of these predictions and how the disciples fail to make sense of it. And then how Jesus guides them through their failure to understand what he's actually getting at. So today we're going to be looking at the very first prediction, which is in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 37. If you want to follow along, it'll probably be helpful today if you pull out a physical Bible and the ones in front of you, page uh, 999, bottom right corner is where you're going to see uh, the beginning of this passage, and we'll flip through that page. Okay, so Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 37. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so the translation that you're holding if you're here is going to be a little bit different. This is what it says. And he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, whom you gave because you love the world. And so we ask that today, by your spirit, we would be able to hear from your son and that you would give us the courage, the strength to trust him and follow him to take this path that he calls us onto. We ask this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. The big idea this morning is that the way of the cross starts with denying yourself and embracing Jesus. It starts with denying yourself and embracing Jesus. Now, I mentioned those, there's these three predictions that Jesus makes, and there's a slide for this that kind of gives you a bit of a, an idea of where these kind of land. And each one you'll see as you go gets a little bit more detailed with the last one giving you the most details. What we're going to do is look at these predictions and then just right after look at what happens, what Jesus explains, how he fleshes it out, what the disciples are responding at. Now, right before the very first prediction, Peter makes this startling confession. It's actually, the, the, at this point, the climax in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus asked Peter, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one God promised to send to make things right in the world. And Matthew's gospel tells us that after this happens, Jesus is so delighted by Peter's confession that he says, blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't figure this out on your own, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Right after this, Jesus begins to teach Peter and his disciples this passage we just read. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man was a title used in the book of Daniel to refer to this divine messianic figure who would restore all things. They would bring God's reign of goodness, justice, healing, peace, truth into this world. The Son of Man would be king. And that's who Peter recognizes Jesus is. You're the one, Jesus. You're the one who's going to defeat evil. You're the one who's going to deal with injustice. You're going to restore the world to what it was intended to be like. And Peter's right. That's who Jesus is. But Peter doesn't recognize a vital part of Jesus' identity. He sees, but he only sees in part. He can see that Jesus is the Christ, but he hasn't come to recognize the fullness of who he is and what he's come to do, which is why Peter, when he hears Jesus say, the Son of Man must suffer and die, takes Jesus aside and he's like, yo, what are you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? The Christ can't defeat evil by suffering and dying? That makes no sense. That's impossible. You must suffer? Must? That indicates you're planning to die that you are voluntarily going to lay down your life. What in the world are you talking about? You can't do that. You're supposed to defeat evil and death, not die. And so Jesus, who has just praised Peter, saying he's blessed, that his father has revealed this thing to him, says, get behind me, Satan. Like, talk about this contrast between two things. You get it right in one moment, and the next words that come out of your mouth, they're wrong, and you're getting called Satan. Jesus says, you're not seeing 
You're not setting your mind on the things of God. Because in this moment, what Peter's doing, without knowing it, he's actually speaking for Satan, tempting Jesus to take another way, a more comfortable way, a way that doesn't cost him his life, that doesn't cost him suffering. It's a temptation to avoid suffering, the cross and death. And this whole theme of recognizing who Jesus is really seems to be an important theme for Mark. And one of the ways you can notice it is the way that Mark sets up his gospel, the way he organizes it. And there's these two really interesting accounts that Mark will kind of couch everything in. In Mark 8, verse 22 and 26, just a little bit before what we read today, we read this account of Jesus healing a blind man. And this man's healing is progressive. He puts his hand on the man and he says, do you see anything? The guy says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes, and the man's sight is restored. We're told his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Then, if you just jump ahead to Mark 10, verses 46 to 52, Jesus heals a blind man named Bartimaeus on the basis of his faith. Immediately, he receives sights and we're told, his, his sight, and we're told he followed Jesus along the road. Now, these two accounts of healing and people receiving sight are important because of what Mark seems to be doing. They frame Jesus' three predictions of his death and his resurrection. And it's as if Mark is implying you cannot see who Jesus really is without the cross. You can't understand who he is. The cross and the resurrection are essential to understanding Jesus. Jesus is saying to Peter, look, I am the Christ, but I didn't come to live. I came to die. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I didn't come to take power, but to lose it. Jesus is bringing his disciples into this key part of his mission, his identity. His secret rescue plan is the way that my son's Bible puts it. I must die. If I don't lay down my life, I cannot rescue and renew the world, nor can I rescue you. You can't see it right now, but the cross is how I will rescue and renew the world. Well, one of the questions immediately becomes, why would Jesus have to die? Why would Jesus have to die? And really quick, we were made by God, for God, to know God, to live with God. Sin is why Jesus has to die. Sin is living in reference to what we alone believe is best, right, true, and good. It's living without reference to God, who is the author and sustainer of life. And this happened in Genesis 3, but it happens every day that we're alive. It's this refusal to believe he really is good, true, trustworthy. And without that, trust in him. You'll just trust in something else to sustain you, it's just that it won't sustain you forever. And when we live in this way, we'll deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. We'll be compelled by our selfish urges and desires to act for our own benefit and at the expense of others. And we'll actually fail to love God or others. The Bible tells us that sin's like this force that rules humans. And Paul will write, in Romans 6, 6, that we are slaves to sin. And that the consequences of sin 
are death. The consequences of living without reference to God are relational, physical, spiritual death. Relationships break down. They disintegrate. Spiritual and physical death is what we experience because we've been disconnected from the source of life, God himself. Your life, your relationships with God are broken because there's no trust. And without a relationship, you're not fully living as if the way you were created to live, even if you tried. This is like, imagine you go for a hike in Squamish. Maybe you're going to do the chief. And somehow you see and discover a fully functional Jeep on the path there. It's got a tank full of gas. But instead of using it to explore, don't come at me if you're like, that's not environmentally sensitive, okay? It's just an imagination, okay? Just think about it. Instead of using this Jeep to explore the forest, to go off-roading, take a journey, you start using it to store your water bottles, to store food in its compartments. You take the chairs out of it and you use them so you can just hang out in that area, maybe to rest a little bit. Maybe you set up camp there for a little bit because you want to have an extended period of time. And so you take the chairs out and you set up your sleeping gear in there, like maybe a sleeping bag and all the other stuff you might bring. Then at night, you turn on the headlights so that you can have light in the area so it's not so dark. You plug your phone in so you can charge your phone. But you never drive it. It just stays there. You never use it for what it was designed for. You used it, and you found actually pretty decent creative uses for that vehicle. But you never used it for what it was created and intended for. And that's what our life is apart from God. We never live life and experience the life we were intended to when we live without reference to him. Sin and evil is the reason Jesus must suffer and die and after three days rise again. Because in doing so, Jesus could free you from the grip that sin has on your life and enable you to live as God intended to when he made you. Peter doesn't get it, nor do the other disciples, but they will. And so Jesus begins to teach them, and what he does, we're told, is he says, call, he calls the crowd, all the people around, and the disciples to him. And he said, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, if you want to follow me, you must take the way of the cross. And that means you need to deny yourself and embrace me. And I think the way that Jesus phrases this is really interesting because it's not just one or the other. See, when it comes to discipleship to Jesus, we often act like it's either denying yourself or embracing Jesus. Depending on your personality, your background, what you've been taught, you'll lean probably to one of these more than the others. Some of us live as if following Jesus simply means denying yourself. Some of us live as if following Jesus simply means embracing him, but Jesus says it's both. If you live as if discipleship is simply denying yourself, then you'll obey his commands, but you won't know Jesus. This is a form of like religious legalism. You'll live with duty, but no delight. You believe suppressing your desires, your emotions, your thoughts, you'll ignore those things while denying your humanity. 
And this is dead religion. This doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to flourishing. It, doesn't, it actually leads to exhaustion, not just for you, but for people around you. Because it's never good enough. You're constantly thinking about how what you haven't, what you haven't done. You're thinking about what, how you haven't done enough, that you failed to trust him here, that you willfully ignored him here. When you live like this, it's like you, have a, you live in this home and you do your best to obey Jesus. You're trying to restore your home, fix the damage that's been done over the years. You're trying to repair the foundation, but you're tired. And everyone that lives in this home is tired too. And you live as if he cannot come in until it's done, until it's completed. You live as if he can't come until something's on fire or flooded and you have nowhere else to turn, then he can finally come in and fix it. The thing is, Jesus waits outside for you to invite him in. And he can do just fine with what is in that place. And he can renovate that home better than you possibly could. Following Jesus is not about extinguishing all desire, denying your own personality in order to discover peace. You deny yourself, the selfish part of you that seeks to assert living without reference to him. Notice that Jesus says in verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Come after me. Follow me. The point of being a disciple with Jesus is to be with him and become like him and do what he does, not become and do without him. This life that Jesus is calling his followers to is a life with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was this German theologian famous for resisting the Nazis in World War II. He was killed by the Nazis for his role in this attempt to assassinate Hitler. Bonhoeffer considered that every day that he didn't spend in the Holy Scriptures was a lost day for him. Why? Because it was where he encountered God. It was where he heard from God. He wrote, Before the heart unlocks itself for the world, God wants to open it for himself. Before the ear takes in the countless voices of the day, it should hear in the early hours the voice of the Creator and Redeemer. God prepared the stillness of the first morning for himself. It should remain his. Now, I'm not trying to say, look, if you, don't, if you don't do your time with Jesus in the morning, you've got it all wrong. This was his personal conviction, but I, what I am trying to say is that God wants to speak and meet with us, that we were made for life with him. And when we live in such a way where we do all these things, but separate from him, we've gotten it wrong. Jesus doesn't say, just say, deny yourself. That's what it means to follow me. That's not it. Suppress your desires. Suppress your thoughts. That's not what he says. Come after me. Follow me, he says. Don't just obey me. Know me. On the other hand, some of us live as if discipleship is simply embracing Jesus without obedience. You want to be with him, but you don't want to do what he says. And that doesn't work either. This is an abuse of his grace, and more importantly, a complete failure to understand who he is. There's this woman, her name's Barbara Boyd, and she tells this story that illustrates this really well. She said, my name is Barbara Boyd. If I come in, if, I, if you come to me and say, hey, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, that's really hard for me. Because 
I don't have a Boyd part and a Barbara part. I can't keep one part out. I am all Barbara and all Boyd. You either get all of me or none of me. Similarly, you can't say to Jesus, come in and save me without saying, Lord. You cannot say, come and help me, but leave out king. It's all of him or nothing. You have to give him everything. You have to make him the center of your life. There can't be any part of your life where you don't let him work and have authority over. Jesus says, you can't just like me or want to be with me. I want you to worship me, to obey me, to follow me. You can't say, come in, Savior, but stay out, King. Come in, Jesus, stay out, Christ. It doesn't work like that. The way of the cross starts with denying yourself and embracing him. It's both. Let him into your life as you are and as he is. And see, what Jesus will say as he calls the crowd to himself with his disciples is, look, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. What I find interesting here is he's not just talking to his inner group. This is for everyone that's there, the whole crowd, everyone who's present, everyone who's listening, not just the apostles, not just an inner circle, not just missionaries, not just the devoted ones or the really knowledgeable ones or the ones who are committed most of all. To anyone who is there, he says this. If anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we hear that, and it's really easy to actually like soften that. Take up your cross was not a flowery metaphor for take up some challenges in life. You know, it's just my burden to bear. I got this hard thing in life. That's it. Something heavy on our shoulders. Picking up your cross was not an appealing call in the first century. It's not today, but even more so in the first century. In the first century, the cross was an execution tool. People who carried crosses were considered walking dead men. They, those who were crucified were criminals, revolutionaries, and slaves thought guilty of doing something shameful. They were ridiculed, spit on, stripped. Their shameful death was a public spectacle for the whole town. And Jesus is saying, if you want me, if you want to come after me, if you want a, any real substantial part of me, my kingdom, my life, you must give up the right to your own life. Here's how Donald English puts it. Cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than coming, than giving one's whole life over to following him. Your whole life. That's why Jesus starts by saying you must deny yourself. You cannot pick up the cross if you're still clinging to it as you know it. You're still preoccupied with your life. Nothing less than your whole life. Your relationship status, your sexuality, your job, your identity, your family, your time, your thoughts, your emotion, how you spend your money, who you pray for, who you forgive, how you pray, how you should work, what your priorities are, all of it, all of life. Your past, your present, and your future. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus means he is in charge over it all. He's not just Jesus. He's Jesus Christ. And I get that this is not appealing. Like I said, it wasn't appealing in the first century. So why would we do this? 
And in one sense, you'd think, why would Jesus say this? I mean, this kind of seems like it'd kind of discourage people from following him. It doesn't seem like he'd invite the masses. I feel like this would actually push the masses away. So what is he doing? Why, why would we do this? I could tell you Jesus knows how life works best, because he does. He's the smartest being ever to live. He's brilliant. But that's not what Jesus says as to why we should. Jesus will say in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you're going to experience life, the life that you was intended for you, you cannot cling to your life. You cannot be the one in charge. You cannot live without reference to me. You cannot call me king and then live as if you are the king of your life. Jesus says you have to lay down your claim to your life, just as I have. When you give your whole life to following him, something happens. Donald English says this, here comes another surprise. This is the total way of freedom. If you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting it against all others, asserting all your rights, needs, and privileges, you lose it. Because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that life is not yours by right, that all is privilege, and that it is to be lived in the love that the gospel story reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. There is now nothing to lose and everything to gain. Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Some of us know that verse by memory. We've heard it so many times. I like the way Eugene Peterson rendered it. He said, What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What good would it do to get that job, the house, the relationship, the money, the status, that thing you've always wanted, but then lose the real you, the you that God created you to be? And what are the things that often get in the way of, gi of giving less than my whole life over to God? Those are the things that we treasure most in life sense of security, safety, reputation, our preferences sometimes, or just desires or stuff, self-preservation. A pastor I met um, when I uh, had a chance to go to Oxford, his name is Stephen Foster, and he said, all treasure ultimately asks you to lose yourself to find it. But Jesus is the only one who gave himself to find you. All treasure ultimately asks you to lose yourself to find it. Whether that be your safety, your reputation, stuff, whatever that might be. But Jesus is the one who comes and gives himself up to find you. Jesus will say in verse 37, For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, there are things worth living for, but Jesus is saying here that there are some things that are worth dying for, and I am one of those things. See, this is why when you come and actually look at the Gospels, it's not possible to just say, Jesus is a, like a really nice, humble teacher. He is humble. But then when you read things like this and the claims he makes on your life, you can't just say he's just a nice guy, a wise sage. He's making more than that kind of claim. 
on your life. And so you have to reckon with, with what it is, it is that he's saying and doing throughout the whole of the Gospels. This is the living God among us. God with skin on. And he's calling us to lay down our lives and follow him. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of, the, of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Being ashamed of him actually leads to him not recognizing you in that final day when he returns in the glory of his Father with his angels to complete the work that he's begun in renewing all things. That's why Jesus is saying, look, it's worth it to follow me. This is why you should take up your cross. See, when you take up your cross, when you give your whole life up to follow him, something happens. In losing your life, you gain Christ's life. That's the paradox of following Jesus. You must die, but when you do, you receive new life. My life in you, he says. In attaching yourself to Jesus and his way, Jesus attaches himself to you and leads you in the way. You don't do it on your own. When you give up filling your life up with more stuff, more things, when you surrender the need to have the surplus, Jesus will say, I will fill you with my life. Jesus gives you the abundant life that he came to give. In giving up the safety, the security of finances or stuff, you gain an eternal security. In owning Jesus, you are owned by Jesus. And in him, you have the one who will never let you go. You have a heavenly father who is provider and protector, not simply over your physical body, but over your whole person. In surrendering what others will think of you and following Jesus, you are given a remarkable status. You become a daughter or son of the Most High God. And holy and a holy and blameless people you become a friend of God. When you give your heart over to God, the center of your desires, thoughts, emotions, you're able to receive his heart, his kingdom, his righteousness. And this is the invitation that he makes. If you're going to be, have me, deny yourself. This right to live without reference to me, take up your cross, make your whole life about following me. And he says, it's worth it. It'll cost you everything, but you will gain everything, more than you could possibly imagine. The trouble we live in in our world is that we fail to see the eternal perspective. We don't always see all that we're actually being invited to. We don't actually believe all that he promises. And so when we hear, we're like, man, that is a ridiculous call. I don't, I don't know if that's for me. But something that happens when we encounter Jesus is we become aware that there's more to life than what we can see with just our eyes. And the invitation from Jesus is to begin to see and experience life as he does. And that's why when we lay down our lives, we lay down that old person who sought to live without reference to him, who sought to live as king or queen. But then he brings new life into us, who lives in reference to him, in right relationship with him, and seeks to live, in, and you seek to live in right relationship with other people. And you don't live trying to grasp for control, you actually live from a place 
of confidence in the one who is in control. You don't actually grasp for feeling like the security of your possessions or your money. You actually understand that the one who you follow has access to all the resources you could possibly need. We could spend most of today just talking about the different ways God has provided for some of us when we just took a step of faith. We didn't see how it would show up, but it just did. He has access to resources we can't possibly imagine. What Jesus is saying, look, follow me. And when you surrender your life, you will gain the life you were meant to have. But it won't happen unless you first lay down your life and you pick up the cross and follow me. Father in heaven, we need you. We need you to see life as you intended. We need you to be able to see life as like you want us to see it, the way we're meant to experience it. And we confess that there's so many different things that um, butt up against that vision that you have for our lives. But I ask that today and into this week, you would be leading us to see those false stories and promises that we've actually been living in and where they've led us. We don't want to be a community of people who seek to obey you but have no real relationship with you. And we don't want to be a people who seek to be with you but only obey you. We want to do both. We want to experience both. We want to be changed by you. And so we ask that by your spirit that would happen and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. So for the ways in which we've gotten it wrong this week, Lord Jesus, we say we want to turn from that. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your help in making things right with anyone we've gotten wrong this week. Bring them to our mind today. We ask you would fill us with your life, Jesus. Fill us with your joy, with your power, with your peace, with your love with your gentleness, with your faithfulness, and your kindness, your self-control. Fill us with all of your life, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. We're going to take part in communion.